All right, good to be with you guys. I, um, man, very fun. I, I was at, uh, I was at, um, on Thursday night, I was hanging out with a bunch of the um, guys from the, the Huntington Beach campus, playing basketball, and then there was a time afterwards where we kind of prayed, and there was some confession and sharing and things like that going on, and then um, there's some great stuff happening at the Irvine campus that I'm a part of on Sunday nights, which has been really cool, and and then to be able to hear some of the stories as we talk as a pastoral team about what's going on in Mission Viejo, they're just, they're, it's clearly evident that God is doing some very cool things um, in our midst and in the Mission Viejo community and among all the Mariners campuses. So it is very, very cool to be here, to be able to, to join in what God's already doing in this, particularly in this series. And John mentioned the series is called Unearthed. And really, in one way, it's sort of taking a look at our own lives through the lens of sort of the next, in other words, through the lens of eternity. And uh, we're in the, the, the chapter of the book we're looking at, the chapters we're looking at are in the book of Revelation 4 and 5, which if, you've ever, if you have any familiarity with that at all, it's full of this really bizarre and colorful and you know, powerful symbolic language. And it is, um, our intent isn't to try to figure out and to interpret every symbol and all kinds of stuff in those, in those two chapters, but really our intent has been in this unearthed series to really dial in, and what is, what is the focus of all of that language actually about? And it's about the one who sits on the throne at the center of all things. And what we find out that to the early church, there was such great news that the one sitting at the center of the throne of all things was not Caesar, and it was, and it is not me, and it is not you. And that's, that's really the sort of essence of the series that we're in. And this is the fourth week of that series. And um, like I said, very, very cool to be here with you today. Would you pray with me as we um, hear from God today? Jesus, we pause. We stop. We still ourselves, if only for a few moments. We acknowledge that you are here. In the quiet, would you mend wounds? Would you occupy the broken spaces in our own hearts? Would you speak to us? Would you challenge us? God, would we adopt a posture toward you, Jesus, that is one of respect and awe and wonder? We give you these moments, Jesus, and it is your name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you need a Bible, if you want to follow along in a Bible, you, you, you know, I'll put all the scripture on the screen that we're going to use today, but if you want to follow along in the Bible, you like to have sort of the tactile relationship with the Bible, there's some folks that love to pass one out to you. If you just need one, go ahead and raise your hand. And I would say if you don't have a Bible at your house and need one, steal that one. And... Um, if you have an issue with that, you can just talk to John Ramsey, who was up here earlier doing the announcements. Um, he'll handle that for you. If you have already stolen a few Bibles, you have some that look like that at your own house, let me encourage you not to steal another one. <laughs> just bring a few back. No one will ask any questions. Just act like you're one of the people passing it out. Oh, I brought six today and just hand some out. So, but I want to encourage you, if you need a Bible, just go ahead and take one. You know, we got it. So I um, want you to be able to have that. When I was in high school, or Revelation chapter four, I should say this, if you want to turn there. But um, when I was in high school, uh, I, I remember I went to a Catholic high school, and I don't know if they still do this, but I remember being at the freshman orientation. And we're all in the gym, and they said to us, you guys, when, when, a, when an adult walks into a classroom 
And even though your attention will be so wrapped in your teacher's lectures, and you'll be so just absolutely diving in and just ravenous for the information that they're giving to you, if an adult walks into the room, immediately you'll need to peel yourself from the compelling lecture their teacher is giving and stand up and face the door as a sign of respect for the adult that walks into the door. So that whatever, whatever would happen if an adult walked into the room, all the students would stand up and face the adult who walked in. And when the, uh, that adult allowed you, dismissed you to sit down again, then you could sit down, but not before then. And, you know, really, the only adults that are walking into a classroom during instruction time are other teachers. Because any random adult that walks into a classroom is not allowed to be there. So it's always a teacher, meaning that they had a reputation that preceded them before they entered the room. And there are two broad categories of teachers that sort of, with regard to this rule. One teacher would open the door and there was an attitude about them that said, these kids better stand up for me because I am a grown-up and I am a teacher and I need this respect because if I don't get it, my whole soul will implode and I really need high school kids to stand up for me when I walk in a room. That's kind of the attitude. Now, the moment that teacher, who of course had a reputation, when that insecure teacher walked into the room and opened the door, immediately an unspoken game of how much disrespect can we show this person without getting in trouble would sort of, would sort of serve. And the way that the game was played was like this. Now remember, you're, you have to stand up until the teacher dismisses you to sit back down again. So what you would do is this. Teacher walks in with that reputation. They open the door. They have the, excuse me, grown-up in the room attitude. You, the, the idea was to not to reach the fully standing up position before they dismiss you. Does that make sense? So, like, it was the, oh, grown-up's in the room, and, every, you know, the nerdy kid jumps up, whatever, and we're like, whatever. You know, but, but everybody else, uh, you're, trying to, you're in this, like, position, like, I'm slowly standing up, just like, you know, like this. And, of course, you're looking at the other guy next to you, trying to see if you can do it slower than he is. You're trying to pump fake, you know, whatever, and you stand up. And there's this, which this, of course, is a much more difficult position to stand in for a long period of time anyways than this is. But the moment you did this, you're, you're out, you know. So it's just kind of this, how, how, how far can we push this level? Of, even in this right here, you'd still not, you're not respecting the teacher. It's like, ah, I'm not respecting you. You know, whatever. That was kind of this, this thing. And then there were other teachers who walked in. And those teachers, and their reputation was one that was like this. I really don't need the students to stand up. I mean... I mean, I like high school kids, and, but I'm not, I don't need them to be my new buddies. And I don't need them to show me, shower me with respect because I'll probably go, I'll be okay with my life without them necessarily doing that. I love being a teacher, but I don't need high school kids to boost my ego. And those teachers, when they walked in, they got the swiftest and most sincere response. That person walks in, it's like, oh, that guy's here. Or she's here. Stand up. Now, the intent was that to, we would, the intent of this rule was to communicate to the one who walked in the room, you are worthy of our respect and our honor. That by our physical posture, we would show and demonstrate that the teachers were respected people in our midst. And what I want to do is, I want to, we're going to read a lot of Revelation chapter 4, not all of it. But we're going to read Revelation chapter 4, and I want you to notice the posture of a couple, the elders that are mentioned in this passage. In other words, if you haven't been with us before, please, please, please listen to some of the messages from before, particularly week one. Because I'm not going to be able to recap everything. But I just want you to know, we're going to, I want you to pay attention particularly to the posture of the ones that are known as the elders in this passage. All right, so um, Revelation chapter 4, verse 4, starts like this. Surrounding the throne 
were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing and these were the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. Verse 6, in the center around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes. In front and back. Don't get all hung up on, that's weird. How many eyes were there? And all, you know, don't worry about it. Verse 7, the first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. And the fourth was like a flying eagle. All you have to know is essentially this is representative of all creation. Circling and focused upon the one who sits on the throne. Uh, here we go. Verse, verse 8, each of the four living creatures had six wings. And again, was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. And day and night, they never stopped saying, holy Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Now you have to notice something. The most sacred object in all of Judaism, despite what Indiana Jones might have you think, is not the Ark of the Covenant. It is not the Holy of Holies in the temple. It is not, it is not even the words itself. The most sacred object in all of Judaism is the name of God spoken only once a year by the high priest on the Day of Atonement. And what you have here is there's a description of someone sitting on the throne who is not named, and everybody in that audience are going always talking about God. This is a clearly a sign of respect here that's happening. There's no doubt for them about who's sitting on the throne. And all day and all night, they're praising God, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Verse 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory, which is day and night all the time, whenever they give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, Listen to the posture. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. So here's the scene. There, among other things, at the center of all things is a throne, Around that throne are these creatures, and around somehow in there, there are 24 other thrones with 24 elders. And you have this picture of these elders that have some kind of level of importance. Clearly, they have crowns, they have their own thrones, they're dressed in sort of the, the elegant white robes, and there's this powerful display of worship by those elders, the ones who sit in those thrones. And if you look closely at their posture, it's not a posture of sort of like they're reclining on their thrones. They're enjoying the greatest gift, to the, the, God's gift to all humanity, the Diet Dr. Pepper and Fritos. And like, hey, look at that. There's some rumblings and peals of thunder over there. That's cool. You don't have a picture that they're sort of uh, um, in between emails at the office. Hey, it sounds like something's going on at the center of the universe. I had to pay attention right after this. You don't get the sense that they're um, glancing up, you know, because they didn't, they weren't able to get their hands on a DVR and they had to, they were forced to watch commercials during live television. And during the commercial, they managed to glance up and notice that there was these beasts <laughs> circling a throne. Instead, what you have is them falling down, vacating their thrones and removing their crowns. And crowns are a big deal in Roman society. You get crowns for lots of things. The military ones are incredibly impressive. They have a crown for the first person to, you know, when you're 
like I said, like you, like you know in UBC, just city. Uh, when you're taking over a city, they, they put a, you know, like a, uh, some kind of a ladder or something over the wall of the city. And the first person to go over the ladder, which is now it's him versus the entire other army by himself for a few moments till everybody else climbs up. Come on, buddies, let's go. That guy right there, if he, if he survives, gets a crown. I mean, that's a pretty awesome crown. Yeah, I went over first. Pilly didn't die. You know, that's pretty awesome. They have a similar one if you board an enemy ship. If you, you know, jump into the, you're, you're, you know, you're, they're, they're, there's a naval battle and you jump into the other ship and you survive, you're the first one on, get a crown. If you're, uh, if you save a Roman citizen, you save the life of a Roman citizen and you stand your ground in battle, crown. If you're a general who comes to the rescue of another army, another division or whatever of the army who is, you know, in trouble and you rescue them, crown. If your family has a new baby, baby on board. Right? If you, uh, if you get married, hey, we got married. I can tell you got the crown on. If you die, you are buried with the crown. If they even have a crown that's supposed to sort of, you wear sort of like the crown of shame. If you have had too much to drink, they put the crown on you. You know, and it's like, it's one you don't really wear out in public. You know, it's sort of like, whew, that's just for you. You know, wear it by yourself. And then there's a crown that Caesar would wear. It's called the Corona Radiata. Isn't that a great name? And it was, the crown was uh, supposed to be emblematic of the sun's rays. It was supposed to sort of demonstrate that Caesar himself was as sort of the deified version of himself, the God. Ah, the rays. Do you see the rays coming off of my crown? I'm kind of, I'm kind of God. You know, that's, that was the symbol there. Crowns and their reputations followed people everywhere that they went. Now, even if you weren't wearing it, you'd still be the guy, you know, you're like, I was one of the guys who climbed, I was the first guy over the thing. You know, like you'd still have the, the sort of, reputation of that crown wherever you went. Tonight, we will crown, sort of there will be the coronation ceremony for the best actors in the whole world. The Academy Awards. And you notice when they have, the announcer will sort of uh, uh, describe the presenter that's about to come up and, you know, award someone else with an award. What, what they'll say is, and I looked up who, who would have the longest and most impressive, you know, sort of crowns. Meryl Streep is, that, is the answer. Because what they'll say is when she comes up to present, and I believe she's also nominated again, because how would she not be? She's, I, I, she's, they'll say something like this. Please welcome 17-time Academy Award nominee and two-time winner, Meryl Streep. Right? This will be her crown that she'll you know, be like, this is, you know, and she's, I don't know if she's nice or not, but she appears to be like, yes, thank you, very humble and sweet about it, the whole thing. I mean, maybe she's acting. We don't know. She's that good, right? <laughs> <laughs> But the crowns follow these people all the way around. And I read an article on, in, on uh, Slate.com, which is not, it's not a very, like, Jesus-y entity of a, like, you know, journalism. But I'm reading some of their sort of commentary on the, the Academy Awards and sort of the mystique that kind of goes with it. And there's a paragraph in this article that says, the new golden calf of our society is the golden Oscar statue. That people have come to bow down to it, to serve it, and to worship it as if it were God. And I'm like, oh, do you realize, I know you're trying to be ironic, but that's even more ironic. You know, like, this is so, that in some way or another, what people end up doing is begin to worship the crowns that they have been given. Or they begin to worship the crown bearer, him or herself. Revelation 4 is essentially about crown removal. 
However I have been honored, I now release that crown. However significant my crown seemed to be, by contrast to the one who sits on the throne, the Lamb, Jesus, by contrast to that, my crown is insignificant. As great as it might have been, or as great as people seem to honor it, it is now as if I picked it up in the drive-thru at Burger King. A weekend experience at church is essentially a crown removal service in which we say no matter what we bring into this space, whatever it is that we wear, that we show up, whatever that looks like, it's a place in which we say this is by comparison of however great it might seem, by comparison, I had to remove it. It ought to be something that I take off in this place because I see who sits on the throne. And the challenge for us will be, upon removing our crown, whatever that looks like for us, to then not immediately get into our car and immediately go, that was so great, let's go back to work. I mean, whatever it is that something happens to us between this space and our car and going home, in which there's a crown reattachment sort of ceremony that we go through as well, a re-coronation. Because the trouble for us is that we want our crowns to matter. We were taught this, we were taught this at a very, very young age. My, uh, my two oldest kids are... Um, in elementary school, and we had the open house of their elementary school. Maybe you're familiar with this kind of experience where you, you walk around and they kind of show you what they're doing, what the school's up to, and all kinds of stuff. And so we go into my, you know, my daughter's kindergarten classroom, and we meet the teacher, and you know, we, we, she shows us some of the crafts they do and where they sit for their little reading time and whatever. And we go into my son's room, he's a second grader, and there's, um, there's this project on the wall in which the, the second graders were imagining their own life in 20 years. And the assignment was to not only imagine how you would be, but what kind of award would you receive for that life? Now, there's nothing wrong with this sort of projection. It's very cute, actually. You had um, one student says, she goes, I, I think I'm gonna, I'm, I'd, like to be, I'd like to be a lifesaver, to save lives. And we're like, well, that's really cool. And then underneath it, it says, and I would win a huge award, like $100. <laughs> very cute. The guy who had his, his thing right, right next to my son's, he goes, I'll probably be a ninja. <laughs> and you can look for him he'll be the recipient of the prestigious ninja award of awesomeness in a couple of years so you can be on your lookout for that guy if you ever need a ninja just wait a little bit he'll be there and my own son Dylan he um he's we're looking at his stuff and he's really excited to show us what he what he wrote <laughs> and it was a total shock to my wife and we're like this is totally not what we expected him to write and so I, I have to tell you, my, you know, my, my dad was in the military, but I'm not like a military guy. I have huge respect for people that serve our country. I have like, you know, there's some people I believe are like born to be soldiers and stuff like that. I don't think I was one of those guys. But so I have huge respect for you if you're that, if that's you. And so, but that's just not, that's not something we like talk about in my house, whatever. And my, my, my son said, well, look at his thing, 20 years, I'll be a Navy SEAL. I was like, I looked, I looked at my wife like, What? And he goes, and I'll probably win a military award. It was like he had all this whole, we were, we'd never heard of this ever in our lives. So $100 award winner for saving lives, ninja, Navy SEAL. Now we're taught at a very young age that the things that we, now there's nothing wrong with achievement, nothing wrong with being honored with the ninja award of awesomeness or whatever it is that, that guy wanted. Nothing wrong with those things. The problem becomes for us. Our sort of whole life intention to retain those things as if they are us. 
as if we have a right to hold on to them for everything. We want them to matter so much. <laughs> if you have an office, if you work in an office in which people come to sit down, it's customary to have the display of where you went to school. I went to this school. I also got this advanced degree too. You probably didn't go to a school as good as this one, did you? <laughs> oh, you did? You got into the school, that's great. Well, did you get into a better one? There's the door. I mean, you know, there's this, there's this sort of level of like, do you see how awesome my crowns are? And there's all kinds of ways we do this. There are, you know, there's a sense of we've overcome, we've overcome obstacles, we have the respect of our community, therefore I'm entitled to sort of have the crown and wear it proudly and shine it every day. Some of us have uh, a crowns of our own kids' achievement if you have kids. I don't know what your kids, but my kid's going to be a Navy SEAL, so whatever. Um, <laughs> Maybe you have the ninja kid. I don't know. But <laughs> some of us will have crowns that we would say, well, they don't really, it's not really like it defines us, but you know, the big possessions of our lives, you know, the really big things, like the ability to garner your own security for your own life and family is something that you hold on to as if to say, look at the effort I put in. Isn't this great? It's now mine to hold on to forever. And doesn't it, doesn't it look shiny? Some of us will hold up our relationships how wonderful it is that we're able to, to have these sort of powerful relationships with other people. Others of us will say that the crown that we hold on to is our own physical appearance. That thank God I have that and think, you know, really, it's kind of, I've earned it, I work really hard to do this, and everybody seems to acknowledge it. And in Revelation 4, you have this picture of sacrificial worship, which is centered around the idea of relinquishing, giving up, letting go of, Crowns. But this really is about us letting go of everything that is us when we look at the center of all things and see that there is God on the throne. And yet there's this weird thing that happens the more that we focus on the one who sits on the throne. Now worship is not for us, it's not about us, and yet there's something that happens to us when we engage in it. Look what it says. If you're really quick at flipping in the Bible, you could flip to Acts 17. If you're not, then I'll just show it to you on the screen. Or if you have a need to fake it for everybody, just make some ruffling noises with the Bible, and I'll show it to you on the screen anyways, okay? Here's what's happening. Paul, this is in Acts 17. Paul, the, the apostle, is talking with a couple of philosophers, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And he's standing next to something called the altar to the unknown God. And what he's just, he, he begins to describe to them who the unknown God is, the God unknown to them. And he starts to describe how this works. This is in, this is in um, verse 24, so Acts 17, 24. So Paul's beginning to explain who this unknown God is, and he says this. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. Stop right here. First of all, you should know this. In the ancient world, if you ask someone, where do the gods live? The answer would be, well, they live in the temple. We know because we built a statue of them and put them there. We made him. There he is. Right? So he's saying, the God who made everything doesn't live in a temple made by human hands. Verse 25. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. I'm going to read that again. And he, this unknown God, is not served by human hands 
as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Now, if you remember the way we started this whole conversation at the, at the end of sort of our reading of Revelation 4, ended with the elders saying, you are worthy, Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. He says here, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else, and he is not served by human hands. This is a little confusing. And there's something that's a little bit confusing about this. Don't we serve God? I mean, you heard Becky talking about serving, you know, serving God through serving the kids. Isn't that what this is about? Well, the word here, served, is a very interesting word. And I want you to listen to it because it ha- I'll, I'll say to you in Greek, it has a very similar sound to another word you might be familiar with in English. Listen to the word in Greek, therapeutai. Therapeutai. Doesn't that sound a hair like the word therapy? That God is not in need of our therapy as if he's some sort of insecure teacher saying, wow, I really need to have my ego massaged. That there's something about God who is, the the word actually means to wait upon menially. God isn't in need of the cucumbers on the eyes and the hot mud bath and the rocks and the Enya in the background and the scented candles and the, you know, essential oils bath or whatever. It's not what he's needing from us. It says that God is not like the Greek and Roman gods who need their fragile egos constantly sort of upheld. God does not need our worship for his own ego. Instead, he gives everything. Look what it says in verse 26. From one man, meaning Jesus, he, marked, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. And God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. You see, there's something going on here. Paul seems to be saying that in the act of worship, there is this seeking and reaching out for and even finding God. That while the whole center of our focus about worship is Jesus, it is not about us. There is something that happens to us that is incredibly correct and right. Something about us engaging in worship works. Something about us directing our worship toward Jesus, the object of our worship, something about that seems to make sense in our whole lives. Our senior pastor, Kenton Bishar, will say this, that the the sort of idea of worship, of placing all of us, like you were here last week, are worshipers, whether or not we believe in Jesus or not. We all worship something. But he says that when we place Jesus at the center, at the throne where he belongs in our own lives, if we vacate our own thrones and place Jesus where he ought to be, rightfully in the throne of the center of the universe, then it's a moment of clarity, a moment of sanity, because this is the way things already are. But there's something that happens to us in worship. I want to do something here. It's not, it's not, a, um, it's not a perfect analogy, but um, let's see. Uh, I can, let's see. Uh, can you come up here right here? Yeah, you. Talking to you. Come on up here. Yeah, come around. Just go up the stairs over there and come on over here. Let's see going to have you sing a little song. <laughs> it's part of our act of worship today. 
Okay, so what's your name? Dan. Dan, where are you from, Dan? Uh, Irvine. Irvine. Hey, me too. Oh. Cool. Where do you live? Uh, North Park. North Park. Sorry to hear that. Oh. That's fine. <laughs> um, live in Woodbridge. It's kind of a superior place. Okay. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, have you ever... What's your, your full name? Middle name, too. They all need to know it. Edward McNeely. Well, so your full Daniel name? Daniel Edward McNeely. Daniel Edward McNeely. This, you guys, this is Daniel Edward McNeely. You can yeah. just give him a quick little, hey, what's up, Dan? Good. Okay, good. Now, have you ever, Dan, in your entire life, received a standing ovation from a group of adults? Uh, I have. What? Get, get out of here. Are you serious? Okay, I have to tell you, I've done this every single service, and every single time the answer has been, yeah, I've been up on stage, and that's people give me a standing What would you get a standing ovation for? Uh, at school. What did you do? more college students. What did you do? Uh, I was uh, called Mock Rock Biola. We won it, and everyone stood and applauded. It was the first day. Well, this isn't fun, then. Okay, you have to sit down. Guys, that's Dan. Just say thanks for coming. I know you have to sit down. I'm serious. You have to sit down. Yeah, sit down. Okay. We're not doing that for you. I mean, you're great, but I want to do this. The surprise is now ruined, and you already had your applause. You guys, that's Dan. You can shake his hand, but please do not stand up and applaud him. He's already received that. Okay, you right here. Right here. Yeah, you. You. Yes, you. The long sleeve. No, not you with the iPad. Next to you. Right here. Yeah. One to your left. Come on up here. Yeah, come on up here. Yeah, this is going to be awesome. Right here. Yep. Here she comes. Get ready to hear her voice sing out. <laughs> She's already saying, oh, God, this is going to be great. I can hear it. This is great. Okay. Let's try this again, Dan. Okay. What's your name? Kathleen. Kathleen, have you ever had a standing ovation from a group of adults? Yes. What is the world is going on here? What did you do that you received? Did you rescue someone? Are you a Roman soldier? What did you do? I was in, uh, I was giving a speech when I was in junior high. Okay. Well, we're going to let this one slide because it's not as awesome as a rock concert. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, Kathleen, what, um, what we're going to do here in a second is everybody in this room is going to get up onto their feet and they are going to give to you a thunderous applause. Okay. Way better than that one you got in junior high with that dumb speech you did. I'm sure it was great, but this is going to be, this is going to be unbelievable. I mean, it will be the rumblings and peals of thunder. People, take your glasses off, turn your hat around, put your put your Bible down, put your iPad away, sir. And here's what's going to happen. You're they're going to clap for you. Oh, by the way, where are you from? Illinois. Illinois. Save it. Okay. Here we go. So they're going to clap for you until I tell them to stop. And it will blow you away. Wow. They're going to whistle and scream and they're, because it's just this is your day. Because okay. it's Illinois Day at Mariners Mission Viejo. <laughs> so on the count of three, they're going to stand up and they're going to blow you away with, with a ruckus. I mean, huge applause. Here we go. One, two, three, go. Kathleen's Day. Do it again. Get some more going. Why are you doing this? Kathleen, everybody! Stay here. Stay here. Stay here. All right. Now you can. No, just kidding. One more time for Kathleen! Okay. Hold this. Hold this. Now, I know you guys you actually, actually sit down. I know you're like, is he going to do it again? <laughs> now, I know you didn't come to church today thinking, you know, I'm, 
I, I you know, because Dan's probably going to get another applause. Right. So, you know, <laughs> here comes Big Dan again. But I know you didn't come here expecting that to happen. Right. But it was your day. Yeah. So there you go. Thank you. That's your standing ovation. Everybody should get that. It feels good. Yeah, see, there you go. Okay, now, truthfully, I am Kathleen, everybody. Now, truthfully, we could have predicted how, I mean, that, that, that must have felt for her. We can tell. I mean, she actually, really, the emotion of being, having people stand up for you was pretty amazing. But my guess is, unless you're from Illinois, you may not know her. And yet, wasn't there, so, tell me, for, I'm more interested in your experience of that. Tell me that that wasn't awesome for you. That, that nobody in here was like, oh, geez, Kathleen, really, Kathleen? Like, everybody here went crazy. There was whistling, there was surges, and then it came a crescendo, and it was back down. There was, you know, Dan, I know you're familiar with this, so just, you know, whatever, big deal. But, but there was something that happens to us in this space when we respond like that. Something about that is really good. Now, here's what I want to get after just for a moment is to say, you know, we, we don't know much about Kathleen. And there was something so right about joining in just applauding her. Now, she's wonderful, and I'm sure if we, I mean, if we had more time with her, we could, have had a whole, we could have had a conversation about reasons to applaud her, and there are probably many. But when we gather on the weekend service in this space, what we're actually doing is raising the question that's been raised the entire series this whole time is this. How does my whole life, how is my whole life, an ovation to God. But there's a peculiar rightness about even just, just standing up and cheering for someone who we don't really know. How much more right would it be to sort of begin the idea of an ovation to the one whose story we tell every single week? The gathering here is a chance for an ovation. It's a chance to refocus about what it is that we're really about. To rethink with a new posture and to seek and to reach and to even find in this idea of responding in worship to God. I'm going to, so you don't need to turn here in your Bible. I'll just show it to you on the screen. It'll be really brief. It says in Isaiah 29, 13. The Lord says, These people come near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And their worship of me is based merely on human rules they have been Taught. In other words, God, again, reiterating, I don't want to hear voices sing because it's supposed to, what you're supposed to do. I don't need clapping because it's sort of what we do. I don't need standing because that's what we're supposed to do. We do it because it is God who we choose to worship, not because his ego is fragile, not because he's insecure and needs us to sort of fill him up, but we respond with a whole heart directed toward God. That's the essence of worship. I'd encourage you, if you didn't yet listen to, or if you weren't here last week, or you um, haven't, you know, you didn't, weren't here, you didn't listen to, I would encourage you, listen to last week's message, one of, one of, like, one of my all-time favorites that Mike gave, and I would, I would encourage you, um, because there's something about it that continues to reverberate in this space, too. It's the passage that, sort of about three-quarters of the way through. In Romans 12, and you don't need to turn your Bible, I'm just going to go through it really quickly. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, you get the sense of how worship is extended beyond the walls of this space. Because remember, it goes on and on forever and ever, day and night. It says this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And this is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
And then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. Remember that worship is something that's done day and night. It's what's already going on. The heavenly reality is one in which God is being worshipped all the time where these elders are falling. Their posture is one in which they remove crowns and they're at the feet of the throne. In this place, worship is about garnering focus on the throne. And I want to do something. I want to address our own posture in this sort of gathering. Years ago, I took, we, we um, this is back when I was the high school pastor at Mariners, I, I took a, a bunch of dads and sons on a little trip. We did a father and son kind of getaway, and a, it was the idea was to sort of bring some healing, have some experiences together, to have these fathers and sons play together, and to share some stuff. And so I had these, these fathers and sons sit together, and I had them actually sit to where their knees were actually touching each other, and they had to stare at each other in the eyes. It was creating this unbelievably awkward moment for a lot of these guys. It was really cool. And after we had had them share some things and confess some things and um, receive forgiveness and all kinds of stuff, I then said, all right, everybody, I had them all stand up. And I said, all right, you guys, I want you to hug each other for five seconds longer than you usually hug. In other words, I want you to be just a little bit uncomfortable in the degree of intimacy that you're showing with each other. So this was, this was hilarious to watch this. But you saw some dads who, you know, clearly this was like a big deal for them. It was like, one, two, three, four, five. Love you, son. And you had some dads who were like, they were kind of, they weren't sure how to hold each other. Like, there clearly was like this, how do we hold each other? Like the junior hires at a dance. Do we, how do, you know, do we do this sort of, there was this sort of awkward, there was some who were, you know, they were kind of like trying to outdo other dads with how long that they could, you know, hug their sons. You know, it was like, we just hug forever and ever and ever. And the sweat, poor sweaty son is like, dad, I can't breathe. Just a little bit longer. See the Johnsons over there, they're still hugging. Just a second, just a little bit longer, buddy. You know, it's like all kinds of reactions. To this. Now, the idea was this. That if we could allow them to experience a degree of discomfort in the level of intimacy that they express with each other through physical touch, that there would be some kind of effect through the rest of their week, through the rest of their lives, which said, we're allowed to be more intimate. We just needed to be pushed a little bit to do that. We didn't know it, but until someone made us hug each other for only five seconds longer than we usually hug, we wouldn't have known it. This is my encouragement to you on this weekend. God doesn't need our worship to be self-sustaining. But what he desires is intimacy with us. And what I would say is maybe today you push yourself just a little bit into that five seconds of discomfort or more. I don't know what that is for you with your posture. As you know, the preferred worship style of church gatherings on the weekends is music. We worship with our whole lives. We worship in prayer and in giving and in serving and all our whole life. But the preferred way in which we reorient our focus in a, in a service is through singing. I am not a singer. My, when I'm, you know, we're in the car and my wife is singing with whatever, you know, music is on or whatever CDs happen in the car. My kids are like, oh, man, or don't say Amanda, they say, mommy, mommy, you should be on American Idol. I'm like, that is so great. So I sing a little louder, whatever the song is. Dad. Can you even hear the music? <laughs> That's so funny. That's funny. That's great. Yeah, broccoli for you. Um, but I have this insecurity about, I love when the band is really loud so that, you know, I, I like your ears to hurt so that you don't have to be poisoned by my own voice. I'm a little insecure about it, if you haven't already tell. 
but I also do this. I'm not a person who grew up with the need to like raise my hands when we sing songs. I, I don't know what it, I don't, I don't, I think I might be afraid like, like a low flying helicopter will just chop my hands off, you know. Oh God, is oh, oh, do you see what happens when you do this? Oh, this is terrible. I have no idea. Some of you are like, that's crazy. A helicopter can never fit in this room. I know. Um, but I have this like, you know, maybe I mean, every once in a while I'll do one of these, like, like, helicopter can't get it right there, right? Maybe right there, even with the top of my head. Like, you know, I just have this sort of, I, my general response, my general posture is, I'm not really comfortable with this, so I'm going to do this. And I'll, I mean it. I'm saying the words and I mean them. I mean, I'm, I'm, yeah, we're, we're singing them. I'm singing them quietly because I don't want anybody to leave the room. But I'm singing. And what I want to consider, I want, I want you to just think for a moment then, what it might be like for you to take a little bit step towards something that feels a little bit uncomfortable today? Because the question I have to ask myself is, why am I like that? And I don't know if this is true for you, but for me, I have a sense that the reason why I can't have my hands up is because I feel like I need my hands to hold my crowns. I don't know if that's the same for you. And I'm not trying to create a new morality in here where we're like, walking around like, that guy's really holding out, holding out, and that person over there, he's got one hand on his crown. I can just tell. <laughs> you didn't have both hands up. What crown's he holding on to? You need to confess something? or whatever. You know, I'm not trying to create a new morality here. What I am saying, though, is this. There is something that holds me back from this. And for me, there's something tied to the, my own self-perception, the way I want to be viewed as well. And I don't know what it is for you. For me, it's about holding on to crowns. In a moment, we're going to respond in song. And you will see me, not that you should focus on me at all, and if you're like curious, is he really going to do it? My hands will actually be up. I, and if you see a helicopter, please alert me. <laughs> and you will have to know that during the, for the duration of my hands being raised, I will be uncomfortable. But maybe there's something about intimacy with God that's being demonstrated in the posture of the one who does this. And I don't know, because I don't like to do this. I want to show you for a moment an idea of what it looks like, this kind of respect, this posture of standing and greeting God with our whole self. It's a scene from one of the best movies of all time. It's also, it's more, it's more widely known as a novel. It, and it, if you have, I'm going to ruin this, this book for you, but it's been out for like 60 years. So start reading stuff, okay, <laughs> if I ruin it for you. But this is the final courtroom scene of To Kill a Mockingbird. And the scene is such that um, this is a segregated court, courtroom in the South, and all of the white folks get to sit on the, on the floor with the court proceedings, and everybody who is not white gets to sit up in the balcony. And the lawyer, Atticus Finch, has unsuccessfully represented a man who has been falsely accused. And you, I want you to watch the way that the people in the balcony respond to the, to, to the lawyer, Atticus Finch, in this, in this scene. So check this out.
The little girl is his daughter. And you get the sense that in no terms did the lawyer Atticus at ever at any time require for his own ego, ego people to stand up. It was the rightness of that moment and all the things he needed to do, that was what he was focused upon. And yet there was this powerful display of respect. Miss Jean Louise, stand. Your father's passing. In a moment, we're going to sing, but before we do that, I'm going to invite us to stand in a second. Because your father's passing. Your father is here. Just stand. I'm going to invite you to close your eyes. In this moment, as you stand, would this posture of respect be one in which you Evaluate your own crowns that are being held onto. In this time, in the silence of the standing, would the orientation of your own heart be one in which you remove those crowns? Would you acknowledge in the silence and in this standing, would you acknowledge then that your father is passing? That your father is here. So we'll stand in a holy silence and then we'll sing.